We live in a constantly changing world that seems to be speeding up. Innovation makes something simpler and others more complicated. And when it comes to the intersection of technology and our homes, how can we tell the difference between the latest fad gadget and an asset worth investing in? It does add value to the home and all of the builders that we're talking to are all looking at some type of smart home automation to put into the new build homes in order to be able to today differentiate them, but in three to five years time, simply to sell them. Welcome to the elephant in the room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? The elephant in the room.com.au. This week we're talking about smart homes. Are we really moving into the age of the Jetsons? And that's apologies to anyone under the age of 40 with that reference. Or are we getting sucked in by the Googles and the Amazons of this world by paying them to use our data in return for having the latest gizmo? And with us today to put forward the case for smart homes is Brett Saville, CEO of Quantify Technology, an ASX-listed smart home automation business offering solutions and products to simplify our lived environment improve safety and reduce power. Now, put like that, it sounds very enticing. So thank you for joining us today, Brett. <laughs> Thanks very much, Veronica. I'm really delighted to be to be talking to you and your listeners. Thanks, Brett. I mean, smart homes have been in lots of movies, right? Back to the Future, I mean, Casper. I mean, there's lots of the claps um, when you turn off the lights. But, you know, they've been around for, for years, the idea of having this sort of smart home. But why have they taken just so long? To really take off and are they really taking off now or are we still at the start of the curve? Look um, Chris that's a really good question so you're right smart home automation has been around for at least 20 years and if you look at some sci-fi from the 50s and 60s it's been for, <laughs> for a lot longer. In the past it's really been far too expensive and, and too complex to achieve mass market. The first problem I think is the old CBUS systems that were used uh, in the 90s and the early 2000s uh, really involved wiring up your house with cat cable. <laughs> sorry to interrupt there, but I remember, <laughs> you know, selling houses with CBUS and it was like these, you know, very, very proud owners that have spent between, say, twenty and $50,000 extra to wire their home up and they'd open up this room um, which almost took a room of wiring. <laughs> it's like the old-fashioned computer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, Jesus, what if something goes wrong? Like who's going to fix it? How do you even? Oh well, the answer is yeah, yeah, and the answer is very simple to that. Is that with a custom automation system came a custom automation installer, uh, <laughs> an expert installer kept your data, um, obviously wanted to charge you per visit to fix, and so you were effectively completely addicted to this system and the um, the particular company that you chose to install it. And that's obviously a very analog, it's a very old fashioned way of, of thinking about any sort of technology. So I think what we're going through now is what you might call the iPhone moment for uh, smart home automation. So if you remember the iPhone in 2007, 
the first thing that Steve Jobs did, which was uh, brilliant, was that there were no instruction manual in that iPhone. And that was an absolute revelation because we were used to some sort of mm. cardboard pullout font for multiple of languages. You know, you couldn't even tell which, which way it was meant to be up. So he made the product simple enough for you not to need instructions. And the second thing that he did was he threw open the platform to his competitors that we now call the App Store. And that was quite a remarkable thing to do at the time. And certainly a lot of people said that's the wrong strategy, but it proved to be right. So we're at that cusp, that inflection point with smart home automation, and it's being driven by simplification so that the devices really are simple to install and easy to use, and they work with each other rather than relying on completely um, self-contained systems that don't work with anybody else. As you mentioned, um, you know that they are popular already. So there's something like 60, 60 odd percent of all Australian households have at least one smart product. Um, and they have an average of 20 connected devices in their home. And that number is due to double over the next three or four years. Are people using them properly? Look, that's a really good question, uh, Veronica. And one of the things that we still get is people, particularly in the case of uh, Google Home or the Amazon Alexa, they buy it, they stick it up and switch it on and then say, Google, can you turn off the lights, please? And then they ring up their electrician because <laughs> it hasn't been connected. So <laughs> the answer is they're not using them correctly yet. And as, as is always the case um, with the adoption of technology, you need to have something simple um, that, so that people can use it without much training. And you need to have a product that works with enough other devices for you really to get a benefit from it. And it was very much the same with the iPhone. You know, the iPhone started off as being a bit of a specialist niche product. And then we soon realized that actually our next phone, we didn't want the next phone to have multiple switches along the side. Mm. We have an instruction menu. And we wanted to have some sort of um, app store that would mean that we could put different different software platforms on top. So it's it's coming, Veronica, is the answer. And it's it's picking up very quickly. Let's say you've got a bit of an older home and you're wanting to sort of attack sort of smart home as a journey, what would be sort of the process you would go through um, and things potentially you wouldn't do because it just doesn't make sense yet, but it may do in the future? I think the first thing is to start with, um, start with lighting and um, start with control of power. So if you're not doing that, you're really not getting a decent experience. And the danger, I think, is that if you just install a single smart gadget, you're not really going to um, see the full benefits of automation. So mm. say is speak to your electrician, choose a, a reputable product um, and install some sort of lighting control, probably half a dozen to a dozen devices. It's not going to cost you a great deal. Um, do your research on the products. There's a lot of products out there. And if you do a Google search, you know, you'll find at least at least 100 companies in this space. Yeah. What I'd say is look at the products that are recommended by your electrician, look at the products that have got good reviews, and don't go um, just on price because um, the cost is coming down so much now that it's affordable really for most households. 
So this is obviously always the way with um, new technology, isn't it? That the early adopters pay a fortune and then everyone else gets the uh, economies of scale. But you still, there's a level of hard wiring, obviously, that still needs to happen by the sounds of it. You've got to, still got to get an electrician in to actually install the right product or the right hardware. Um, what's the, other than clapping and turn your lights off or just walking out the door? I mean, you know, because <laughs> there's an old real estate agent's trick, by the way, and that is you can actually just go out there and turn the fuse box, you know, sweep, flick one switch in the fuse box and then the whole house lights up and then you leave and you do and you flick it the other way. Um What's the difference? I mean, what's the real value in automating something like lighting? So the first point to make is that um, you just, as you said, under Australian law, an electrician does need to install a light. So um, whether it's a a connected plug or a non-connected plug, yes, you do need an electrician to do that. So there is some installation cost. In terms of the the benefits, I'd say probably four benefits, Veronica. The first one is, you know, you talked about the Jetson experience. Um, you can personalise your home in a way that you can't do without uh, connected products. You can have a welcome home scene so that when you come home, the alarm is switched off, the hall lighting is switched on, the blinds go up to 50% your favourite music uh, plays, and you can have a a goodbye scene where all your standby power is is switched off. So that personalisation is something Mm. a lot of people are drawn to. And today, most people buy uh, connected products for that Star Trek, that that Jetson type experience. The second thing that it will do is provide you with um, improved safety. So you can buy um, a a security camera system for a fraction of the cost of the old back-to-base alarms that that used to be installed. You can get a garage door controller, which will tell you you when you're away from home if your garage door uh, is opened. Similarly, with a garage door controller, if you want to have a third-party logistics company deliver your high-value parcel, it can be put under the garage door rather than leaving it out of the front door if that's what you want. And the third thing that it does is reduce your energy costs. So if you know what each device is consuming, it allows you to control the power consumption of that device from the very simplest things such as not having the pool on when... um, when it's the high tariff to reducing your lighting from maybe 100% down to 75% and not even being able to notice it. Each of those changes is very small in themselves, but add them together and you get this compounding effect, which makes a big difference to your lived-in experience. And given your customers in particular, Veronica, the final thing I'd say is that it adds value to a home. In the US, a decent part smart home automation system will add 50 grand to the value of a four-bedroom house. We don't have the information about the Australian market because it's not yet mature enough, but there's no doubt that every builder that I deal with is looking at smart home automation today. And if the new builds are all going to have it, the retrofit will follow in due course. Sort of interesting, isn't it? Because we uh, we recently did a Q&A episode and one of the questions was asked of us, which, um, hmm. you know, in terms of sustainable features in in new builds or in in homes, you know, is there any data around that shows that consumers will actually pay more for property because it has those features and and there isn't yet and it's still a very niche um, market where you've got people that will pay more for it, unfortunately, nice to be mainstream. This, I wonder if this, because this is sort of sexier and more and more bells and whistles on it and and Mm. I guess in some ways aligned to sustainability if it does help reduce your energy costs, but... um, 
you know, is, is, is that sort of, do you think that this has probably got more potential to actually add value in a quantifiable way? Because, you know, like you say, in the US, you can quantify it here, you can't. Um, do you think it's got more potential because it's sexier? Yes, I think that's right. And it's, it's, I would say it's a little bit because it's sexier. But as you said earlier, it's much more to do with the fact that it's sustainable. So with the old systems that we were talking about, they are very clunky and clumsy to evolve. Whereas today, the systems have reasonably dumb, sustainable hardware controlled by very powerful software and AI. And without needing to come back to your home every year to make tweaks, the software is improving all the time. So I don't know if you have a Google Home or an Amazon Alexa, but over the last two years, you can see that um, those products have evolved dramatically. The speech is better. Um, the personalization is better. So, for example, Google started to say uh, it's, a, it's a PowerPoint, whereas the American term was an outlet. So they personalize it to the local markets. And it's starting to recognize patterns. So they'll say, Veronica, I see you normally lock your door at night at nine o'clock. You've not done it tonight. Would you like me to do that? Yeah, so they've got this, I mean, you've got this sort of controller, then you install your lights. Um, maybe you put a, you know, Wi-Fi sort of security system in place that can, and garage door, your doorbell. Um, but what are some of the other things that people probably aren't thinking about with smart homes that, you know, are really a key part of smart homes? I think um, really thinking about control of the devices that consume the most power in your home um, so um, you're not going to make a significant difference to uh, power consumption if all you're doing is controlling lighting. Um, but if we think about air conditioning, hot water, and and your pool, those are the, those are the devices. It, it, obviously, if you've got a pool, those are the devices that will really make a, a difference to your total energy bill. Yeah. So the aircon, a lot of those uh, have their own sort of controller, don't they? I'm doing one at the moment, and um, it feels like you're getting a controller for that. And then I've got so HomeKit or Google Home or Alexa, and you're getting this competition of devices. Is it, do you think that ultimately um, we're all going to just have one device, which is one of the big companies, or do you think that there's going to be six controls around the house? No, you can't have six. Um, and it's you're absolutely right, Chris, about the apps. You know, if you look at your phone, most of the research shows that seventy five percent you never go beyond apps yep. on yeah. second page. Um, we don't want our life to be too complex. We want things to work together. Google, right. <laughs> um, Amazon, and Apple have a very similar vision, which is that they want to use their software and AI to link with every device in your home and to control it. And for them, it is a, a race just like the race for smartphones. It's effectively the smartphones of the 2020s. And if you're a major manufacturer now, you have a, a decision to make, which is either to throw control open to these platforms um, or to try and muscle out yourself. And I think for the vast majority um, of manufacturers, they're simply not going to be big enough to compete with with the likes of those three tech giants. So much better to, to work with them than to fight them. This is a big, deep issue for me. I don't have Google Home. I don't have Alexa. I don't, have, I don't even use Siri on my phone. Not that it's probably not listening to me. And I'm a slight yeah. conspiracy theorist on all this, you know. <laughs> and and I really resent the idea that, you know, Google and Amazon, et cetera, are 
making us pay for them to capture our data. So there's there's some issues here that obviously there's privacy, there's, you know, you know, us learning to value our own data. Um, there's, you know, it's been big in the news recently with Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. But so there's lots of issues way and beyond the smart home and probably probably beyond the remit of this actual podcast. But um, <laughs> what, I, what is of interest to me, like, for instance, air conditioners have had, have, you've been able to preset timers on them for years, but I've never, ever preset a timer on my air conditioner mm. and I've probably had air conditioning for probably nearly 20 years. Um, and I guess you could argue the smart home, you know, simplifies all of that, so therefore you would use it. Or you could also argue that, no, you're not going to, I'm only going to use it to order dominoes, you know. Um so I wonder how much of it still relies on the tech savviness of the home owner versus just being sold up a bunch of features that you'll never use and how much of it really is about, you know, redefining or making it actually simpler so you do use those features. And, you know, I'm presuming that's something that you've you've done a lot of research on there, Brett. Mm, yeah. Look, I th- you, you've, there's a couple of points there. So let's just deal with the simplicity first. So... Do you remember um, when anti-locking brakes, collision avoidance, uh, even airbags came came into cars? And you know there, there were always the petrol heads who said, you know, I don't I don't want anti-locking brakes. It will it will spoil my driving experience. <laughs> yeah. if, I, if I have to have it, I want to be able to have some sort of over override so that I can yeah. to mm. improve my safety. Twenty years down the track, twenty five years down the track, no one's doing that now. And indeed, you wouldn't. You wouldn't buy a car without those features unless it was a very obscure, um, you know, classic car from from the 60s or 70s. So in order to be truly mass market, a lot of these things will have to be invisible to you. Otherwise, Mm. simply won't be used. And that means that you've got to have the the confidence that these companies aren't going to do uh, anything that you don't want with your data. So I think you're right. The simplicity comes with making decisions for you. And those decisions will be little micro decisions. And that's what I mean about the compounding effect of marginal gains. It's a 1% here, it's a 1% there. But if at the end of the year, that's compounded to a 10% improvement in your energy bill, then that's that's been worthwhile. I think to deal with your second issue or around the security, um, this is a major concern. And every time I talk about this, I often find that up to half of the questions can be about security. Mm. The first point about the um, those big tech giants is that um, most people have a lot of sensitive data on their phone. They've got their search history. Uh, they've got their banking details. They've got all their emails. Um, so there's a lot more sensitive data on on your um, on your phone. Nice. Than there is on the device, which is basically power consumption, pretty much. Um, and you know, even even with something that sounds very risky, like a connected lock for your front door, and the reality is, for a burglar, it's pretty hard to get into somebody's lock uh, and hack the lock system of a major lock manufacturer. Much better simply to break the window and then open it. Yeah. <laughs> but there is a there is a there is a much deeper answer, which is a which is really around the confidence that people across, in particular, the first world, have in these tech giants. And I think there is an education process that they need to go through with all of us to 
to convince us that our our information is not being used for nefarious purposes. And it, you know, it's fair to say that there's there's an increasing scepticism um, around that at the moment. And so there's there's work to do for all three of them. And it is true that we all we've handed over our privacy long ago. Um, I, I'm thinking too. You know, I look at cars, for instance, and I don't sort of worry, you know, in the olden days, you'd, you'd worry about your car being broken into you. So you go and get an alarm put in and then, you know, then you buy a car with an alarm and then it, then it had this sort of um, yep. security built into the actual the hardware or software of the actual car. And these days, I don't even think about my car getting stolen. You know, I just figure that anyone who's going to be able to hack that, good luck to them, you know, <laughs> just, and, um, and I guess, Though, you know, like you say, when you've got integrated locks or locks that are controlled via a computer, then, you know, that does open up for hacking and and a different type of um, theft, you know. Um, and I guess that's something that we, you know, we all feel a lot safer if we have our key and we use our key and, and I've got bars and an alarm and, and all that sort of stuff and you feel quite safe. But then when you've got like a remote control open my garage door and, and allow access to the house for someone who's going to deliver a parcel, which is great in one level of security and then on the other side of it you think, oh, God, um, how is that protected, you know? And you, we talk, we hear things about encryption is not foolproof and, um so, you know, how, how, I guess, what are developments in that area? What are the assurances for people who want to, you know, completely automate their home? So all, uh, all the best uh, manufacturers will have layers of security. At the hardware layer, you will have a device that um, if you make an exact copy of it, won't be recognised by the system because it's got some sort of a unique number. Then um, communication between the device and the cloud will be encrypted um, which makes it difficult to hack into and, and to interrupt messages. And then at the layer of the cloud, you have some of the most sophisticated providers like Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud really focusing on making it difficult to hack. Now, none of those is completely impenetrable. But if you add layer upon layer, then you are most likely to be secure. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. So assuming that, you know, we're, we're all fine with our data being secure, our home being secure, that um, the benefits outweigh the, the costs and all the rest of it, I've got a couple of other questions. And one is specifically around, you know, the, the ability for technology to be superseded and for us to invest in, yeah. you know, hardware, because there's still some hardware that has to be invested in so that we'll talk to the system or to the app, right? Um What's the risk of that being superseded? I mean, the poor people with $50,000 worth of CBUS wiring, I mean, you know, that's really just gathering dust. <laughs> they probably switched it all off. You know, so there's, because- a, there's a couple, yeah, there's, it, it's a, good, a really good point. And the, what's happened is that a lot of the smarts is in the cloud now, which just means that you don't need to replace the hardware so often. In terms of the hardware, one of the big risks you face is with the way the hardware communicates with the software. So you've got mm. one 
pipe there's various wi-fi standards we've gone 2g 3g 4g uh, and then you probably will have heard of these um, strange other protocols such as uh, z-wave or zigbee bluetooth and so forth and it is a, a complex smorgasbord of different things mm. what is happening is that we are moving from what telco experts call a homogenous network to a heterogeneous network. And what that means is that the device chooses the best protocol. And so immediately that risk of whatever communication standard you, you use um, changing has been diminished. The devices that our company use will be Bluetooth and they'll be Wi-Fi. And they have, um, they have strengths and weaknesses of each protocol. Bluetooth has the advantage in that it meshes together to add strength to all of the devices in the home. Wi-Fi is, is clearly ubiquitous and is supported by every manufacturer in the world. And what we're going to see with the next generation is that actually the chip itself will have multiple communication protocols. So again, that what that does is that it just means that the cost of redundancy is, the likelihood of redundancy is reduced. And then the final point to make is that hardware every year, hardware gets cheaper. And so even if it does become uh, outdated or outmoded, you know, it's a very different proposition if to put smart home automation has cost you a couple of grand than if it's cost you 20 or 30 grand. So then you're back to sustainability and um, yeah. waste. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I Sonos had a bit of backflash um, a little while back because, you know, their Generation 1 stuff, they just sent out saying, well, that's it, too, so sad, too bad, or you loyal customers who, you know, helped us becomes as successful as we are, we're not going to support your first generation hardware anymore. Um, and I'm one of those customers and I've resisted upgrading because I just think, you sucky people, you know, that's a really <laughs> not very nice way to treat your customers, you know. Uh, well, that's the thing a lot with this technology, isn't it? You, is, what, do you really upgrade your TV this year or wait next year when you can get a much better TV for the same price or you can get the same TV much cheaper and I guess – you know, do you buy a Tesla Powerwall when it's ten grand, or do you wait till they're two thousand dollars in two or three years' time? Like, you know, are we at that point yet, Brett, with a lot of the smart home, or should we just really sit on our hands a couple of years and you know wait for you know the better technology and cheaper to sort of start to really flood the market, and and then you can actually get something that's a good value, I guess. No, I think the time the time is now. I think um, you know if you look at a Google Home, the the, the cheapest smart speaker on the market is less than $50. So, you know, it, it, it's not going to go down much from there. And increasingly, most of the uh, manufacturers and OEMs are working with Google, Amazon, and and Apple, which means that you will have control of multiple devices through, through a single app and, and through talk. So what people want today is they want this touch, tap, talk. They want to be able to talk to a device. They want to be able to control it remotely and they want to be able to have a device act like a device. And I think the cost has come down now where it's worthwhile looking at investing in a, in a sensible manner um, in getting, getting these improvements. What I would say is that, you know, it, this comes back to that discussion that we had earlier, Veronica, it, you know, it does add value to the home and I can't quantify it for the Australian market, but what I can tell you is all of the builders that we're talking to are all looking at some type of smart home uh, automation to put into uh, the new built homes in order to be able to 
today differentiate them, but in three to five years' time, simply to sell them. I wish that I'd be looking at solar panels as well. Um, yeah. Now, if okay, so in the US, you say it is quantifiable. Tell us how that's been quantified. Well, this comes from uh, Amazon research with the builders that they work with. Uh, and what they've done is that they've um, put systems in and they've responded, the builders have responded that they would reckon that a, a fully functioning automation system will add up to 50 grand to the value of a home. Um, they're talking about a four bedroom home. So, you know, it's not 50 grand to a mm. 300 grand apartment, but it's, um, it's to a four bedroom home. So what, the builders and developers are saying is that it will add to the value or it means that the property will turn over quicker. So they'll sell it quicker yeah. to discount it. So, so going forward though, Brett, like we've got the lights, you know, all the things, is there any sort of technology that people, you know, you must be watching the new trends and what's coming and things that are actually going to really change our life. Is there any sort of technology you think that we aren't using in our home today that maybe we'll be using in three, four years' time, you know, like a dishwasher, I guess, um, where there's going to be this sort of light bulb moment where um, this new piece of technology comes in and really revolutionises our home. Um, uh, one um, immediate answer is, is home security. Um, so that's taken off very quickly, but the penetration in Australia is still uh, very, very low. And for... An affordable price, you know, in, in the numbers that I'm talking to, the ability to be able to um, remotely view what's going on, to have alarms be set off so that you know if something's going on, to have the potential to go either back to base or or, or, or to the police station. Those are very cost-effective um, systems to install yeah. now. And I would say that the one device that hasn't really taken off um, is... The, the Dyson, the vacuum cleaner, whatever it's called. Um, and so we've got those robot vacuum cleaners, but they're not ubiquitous. Um, they can't climb upstairs. So I think that would be one area where we'll, where, where we'll see a lot of innovation over the next three years. Well, the house that cleans itself while you're at work. Exactly. How mm. cool would that be? <laughs> mm. Exactly right. <laughs> Could save, yeah, 100 bucks a week, you know, for the cleaner. Um, so anything else, anything sort of more whiz-bang than that? Anything that sort of goes through walls? Or no, <laughs> not really. Truly no, space I, I, age? no, no, I don't think so. Um, you, you mentioned uh, solar. Um, as, as you know, one of the issues with, with power um, in Australia is there isn't really a coherent national strategy on what we're going to be doing. And it's very difficult for the solar companies uh, and the battery companies to scale up because um, each state has subsidies. Um, sometimes they're even at a lower level than the level of the state. Um, there isn't a national approach. Um, electric car penetration is, has been you know, woeful in, in Australia. Um, and there's been far less government intervention in that. What is going to happen is that Australia at some point will have to catch up with the rest of the world. And the issue for a home is if it has an electric car, it will use 25% more power. So mm. it's really important then to have a battery uh, and solar. And if we've got battery and solar, having that working in with the everything beyond the meter, all your devices, is, is the best way to optimise your power bill. 
So you potentially up to fifty percent more power if you've got say twenty twenty five percent. Oh, two cars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a huge sort of weight load on the current system. You have know, single phase, it's a new, three phase, and that's exactly right. It's um, and it's a it's a nightmare for for the utility companies, and you know what they're crying out for is to have some sort of national strategy to be able to coordinate this because you know we all know that. Um, electric cars are coming and will represent a meaningful proportion of the total traffic um, over the next 10 years. And it's going to take 10 mm. years as, as a country to get ready for them. But we've also got tyranny of distance that, you know, a lot of other countries don't have, which is one of the issues with electric cars. Um, but I have, you know, I have heard of, you know, sort of like the, the house of the future is basically its own little power um, station you know that the car becomes the battery for the house you know so there's all sorts of weird weird and wonderful you're absolutely right veronica and of course whilst there is the tyranny of distance in australia the big advantage we've got is is the weather which is is, you know we're in Mm. climate for solar power Mm. um, the average house can generate a lot of power um, during the year Um, and in terms of, of driving really most of us live in um, metro areas and most of us don't do more than 600 kilometers at one go so although if, in the age of covid people, you ah. know. <laughs> well you'll be just be having your uh, your zencast or your um, or your zoom meeting won't you you won't necessarily need to travel at all <laughs> you mentioned water um very early on is that things that you can do obviously we're talking about power and electricity etc but you know, that's probably another big resource that we do use for our houses. Is there mm. ways to sort of not manage the, you know, actually just the usage of water and to be smarter with all that? I think it comes, um, there prob- probably is, uh, and I've seen some um, initial experiments in this space, uh, not a great deal. I think in terms of the smart meter, there's a very high proportion of water is lost through leakages. And one of the things that the utilities, water utilities want to do is to be able to pick up leaks much quicker, which they can do through smart meters. I think in terms of your own home, your power bill in part is driven by the cost of heating your water. So if you mm-hmm. have an understanding of what that's costing you and when it's being drawn down, then you can manage it better. You can heat the tank at certain times off peak. Correct. For the stuff. Yeah. If you've got a tank. That's very true. That is also true. <laughs> Right, so uh, you're saying that smart home automation is here to stay. You're saying that the time is now to buy it because it's it's cheaper than it was. You're saying that that we have how many? What percentage of thirty percent of our um, appliances on average? Was that the figure that you gave? Average, the are- average, the average home today has about has nineteen connected devices, uh, and that'll double over the next three years. And in terms of smart speakers, there's one in every six or seven homes. And when you say that they've got 19 connected devices, they're connectable devices or connected devices? So that um, I'm using a broad definition here, so that could include laptops and PC. Right, okay. So I suspect what you're suggesting there is that we already have a lot of the hardware, it's just that we're probably not joining the dots. That's exactly right, Veronica, yep. I definitely have a lot of the hardware and I have not joined the dots in my house. <laughs> okay, well, so this is interesting. It's potentially the way of the future. Um, it's uh, 
potentially could add value to a home. Um, I, I guess my personal cynicism is that that's going to take a while um, mm. for that to translate into, you know, in terms of making an investment in your own home. It's you do it for your own comfort um, rather than, um, you know, for adding value because I just think that most people at this stage, I think it sort of fits in the bucket of sustainability. Unfortunately, they're just not prepared to pay more for it. I guess it's part of the selling though, isn't it? It's just if you, for example, are doing a renovating your home to sell um, and you can do things that don't cost a lot of money, i.e. a video doorbell, you know, security cameras. Um, yes, you create this sort of lighting that's all smart home. Um, it gives the agent sort of another sort of thing that may only be a few thousand dollars but it just might be enough to sort of invoke the emotions a little bit more do you think veronica um and maybe create one more buyer that's a little bit interested and maybe he's a little bit tech savvy and gets excited by it do you think that those sort of small things could make a difference hence why you get more competition which hence why you might get higher prices do you think i think my when, wishful thinking well when you're selling a property fundamentally you are looking at every additional buyer it will potentially mean more money, you know, because it's all about competition. And whether you're selling at, a, at an asking price or whether you're actually going to auction, the, the principle is the same. At an asking price, you're more likely to get your asking price or even maybe more mm-hmm. than your asking price if you've got more than one person fighting over it. And yeah. so, yes, if you happen to have that um, attraction for that tech-savvy person or the sustainable, um, you know, the eco-warrior, which I would love it if everyone was an eco-warrior in particular, but we're not, Um, then yes, potentially that can work. But the problem is I would say that, you know, until that's that's, um, a larger proportion of the buying public, then it's relying a bit on luck rather than on good design you know what I mean and I do every now and then come across a house that's being listed and it's or, or an apartment even that's really been pitched as having some you know extremely wonderful feature that's all lovely but it you know the feedback we get from uh, agents a lot is very much well you know the buyers love it, it gives us something more to talk about yeah. you know might keep them in the home a little bit more maybe gets an extra buyer but at the end of the day most people are like yeah nice to have but if the rest of the house is not what I want I'm not going to I'm yeah. not going to go hard on it. You know, there's there's other things in the property that, that are more they build. important. Yeah, exactly. And so that's just the icing on the cake. Mm. Look, I think that's right. And I think um, we haven't really talked a lot about costs, but what I'm talking about is probably two to three grand in hardware. Yeah. Not mm. talking about the old CBUS 20 to 50 grand investment. Yes. Is there someone out there, Brett, like, you know, I know there's YouTube channels and everything. Can I have to do a quick search? You know, smart homes, there's hundreds of YouTube channels that people are smart home experts. Is there sort of people popping up though, where, you know, we will make your home smart. You pay us a sort of consultancy fee. We have agreements with all the manufacturers. Um, so pay us and we'll do it all for you. Um, you yes. And I think, I think, I think the, there are, but I think the challenge is that the integrators historically have come from those custom design smart home automation, big C bus type systems. So yeah. they go to your home and say, well, you know, it, it, it's, you're not going to get any change out of 50 grand. So what we haven't yet seen, which is something that's very popular in the States is people that will give you a simple solution over the phone uh, and then have a man in the van can deliver that to you, to your home. Mm. And that's, I think where we're, we're looking to head 
Um, that won't be our organisation, but we're certainly talking to a number of organisations to see if they could play that role. And if you think about it, if you you, know, you mentioned earlier buying a TV, um, if you buy a TV from one of the major manufacturers, the person that deliver it, delivers, it, delivers it will also install it and probably run a few checks as well and explain how to, how to do that. And I think what you're seeing in the States now, and we need to see more of that here in Australia. So have you got a property Dumbo for us, Brett? I have indeed. I have Excellent. Indeed. So most people, I think, on the call will have heard of um, smart light bulbs. And beginning your journey into smart home automation, it sounds like a very good way to go. Buy a bulb, it will only cost you $20 or $30. You install it and, hey, presto, it works. And we do find uh, a number of people that we speak to have gone down this route, of buying a smart bulb as part of the, <laughs> the journey. Now, there is one slight problem with a smart light bulb, and that is if the switch at the wall is off, you can do whatever you want on the app, but the light <laughs> won't. So what you then do is we go into homes and we see lots of sticky tape all over the light switches just to <laughs> switch it on. So smart light bulbs have their place, but if, you're, if you are interested in, um, in smart home automation, start with the things that control the power, control the lights, control um, the, the dimmers, the air conditioning, the blinds, the garage door controllers. Start with those devices. Put a few grand aside for your experimentation. Get enough devices in so that you can actually have seen control, that you can actually have the benefits rather than just a, a single item. So that would be my, my Dumbo. Please don't think that that's... Um, going to really help you make a decision about smart home automation because it it has a number of limitations that mean it, it risks being a very unsatisfactory experience. Classic. So <laughs> can you control your home from your from your iPhone? Yes, yeah. So um, the way it will work or the way it does work um, with our products and most of the competitors is that you, there will be an app and you can download our app, or increasingly, you can use the Google app or the Amazon app or the Apple app to control your home. Yeah, I mean, Apple have got HomeKit, isn't it? Or just Home, yes. I think it might be. Home, HomeKit, uh, that's right. Yeah, and so ideally what you're doing is you're adding devices to HomeKit, um, whether it's your, uh, your doorbell or your lights or your blinds or your solar or your aircon, which I don't think these companies have all sort of, you know, or your sound or... But each, you know, just as adding accessories and then you set limits and times and things like that. But uh, it's, and then it's you a group long way them. to go, I think, isn't it? Yes, and then you group them together and you, um, once you've grouped together, you can then operate scenes. You can then have, you know, let, let's say when you're hot on holiday, um, you have a holiday mode, which means that the lights go on at a certain time uh, and it appears that somebody's in, in your house. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that you can do with it. That sort of reminds me, you know, your, your parents put the radio on and the light on and, of course, it's still on at 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> when you're on holidays. So the robbers look and go, oh, those lights on for 24 hours a day. They must be on holidays. <laughs> Solves that problem. <laughs> yeah, I think 100% lines with that sustainable thing you spoke about, Veronica. I don't think maybe today it's not quantifiable, but it isn't that big of an investment and if that helps you potentially sell your home on, and while you're living in it, potentially have a better experience. It's something to start to consider because more and more products are sort of coming out and the technology is getting better and 
Um, it's not just sort of clapping for the lights anymore. Exactly right. Uh, I think I, I, I would say something like, look, your your phone's smart, uh, your car is smart, so your home should be as well. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming along, Brett. Um, we will pop a, a link in the show notes for, uh, you know, I guess your business. So if anyone's interested in looking into it further, then they can use it as a starting point. And uh, we appreciate you coming along and, and telling us a bit about this. We keep hearing about smart homes. We feel like we're missing out on something. And so if that certainly is you, there's, uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks, Veronica. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate the time. Very good. Thanks, Brett. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Oh, just a little bit of an extension on what we started talking about with Brett there. We started talking about, you know, is making your house a smart home, you know, something good for... So, yes, I think it was it was agreed that if you're going to find it uh, a way to make your home more comfortable and also to save energy, I think there's a real good case for making your home a smart home and you enjoy it while you're living there. But to do it purely to add a selling point, I would think is probably not necessarily a great investment. But, you know, there are lots of things that you do need to do to your property if you are planning to sell. And that is, you know, fundamentally to make it more appealing. And and I think that uh, one of the things I used to always say to to potential vendors and buyers for that matter when I was a sales agent was that no one ever lives in their house the way they do when they're selling it. And that means all the typical decluttering, the painting, the full-on clean, all the windows sparkling, you know, garden looking trimmed and low maintenance and watered and, you know, all the things um, that you need to do. You, you actually need a, f- a fresh set of eyes in many cases because all the things that your eyes gloss <laughs> over, you know, that you're so used to seeing. So true. Those are things that really stick out like sore thumbs when you're selling. And I remember when I was selling my house a number of years back, and the front wall, the side wall, so it's right on the outside, it's on the street, it's it's a fairly low wall for that matter. It just had a few cracks in the render. And to be quite frank, everything was immaculate on the inside of the house. The, the house is beautiful and the garden is beautiful and et cetera, et cetera. But um, he actually came to me and said, look, before we have the first open, I really want you to fix that render. <laughs> I looked at him like he's got three heads. Are you kidding me? And it's like attention to detail, every little thing. You don't want to jar anybody. You don't want to have anyone thinking, oh, my God, this is this is going to be maintenance, maintenance, maintenance. Um, so these are sort of on the flip side of this. These are tips for buyers to walk in and think, if this thing is schmicko, just remember it requires a lot of money and time and effort and energy to actually keep in that condition. (laughs) (laughs) Homes don't stay like that. So I think, you know, they're the things that make a difference. You want to take away any friction, you know, when, when you're selling your home, you want to make it, the buyers just walk in and imagine the dream life in that home um, and take away the friction. So, and sometimes when, you know, adding whiz-bang technology actually adds friction because the agent then is trying to sell it and that makes it, you know, sometimes it actually makes it harder to sell, to be honest. I mean, I love those two points. I think the uh, definitely getting it obviously ready for sale, but if you are buying, just remember you are buying something that um, (laughs) is never going to look as good as when you first uh, see it at the open Uh, and there's a lot of work to sort of maintain. I just laugh because I'm you know, doing that at the moment. We bought our house and there, we didn't even notice there was fly, wasn't fly screens on the place. Like we were across, <laughs> but if, if, because we had to buy it so fast, it was pre-market. Um, but there's no way this place would have got away with doing opens with no fly screens, um, you know, and it's just, I just think it's, uh, 
you know, you've also got to, if you're thinking about doing an upgrade, we get lots of clients at this stage and um, it's a really tricky conversation because some people have got the ability to upgrade without selling. Um, you know, they can buy first. Um, but if, and a lot of people can't, they need to sell first. And so if you're thinking about doing, just start to do the work and start getting it ready for sale because, you know, by the time you actually go, oh, let's sell, you could be months before you get it up to, to saleable and you could miss the seasons. And um, so, yeah, just really stay on top of these things if you're thinking about doing an upgrade because um, it's not you don't want to have that all the stress of tidying the place up plus trying to sell, plus trying to buy. Um, it's exhausting. There's only so much we can do. So stay on top of it if you're thinking about upgrading. So true. And in fact, I'd encourage you to stay on top of it anyway. I mean, it's sort of, <laughs> I'm pretty fortunate. My, my partner is very fastidious and, um, you know, it's it's hilarious. She's even got me outside getting rid of cobwebs the minute we see them now, you know, I mean, right on top of it. And, and, and it does, it, it, it it requires, uh, you know, and I look at houses that have got 20 years worth of cobwebs in them, you know, and it, it's, it's when you have a house, and this is one of the things that people when they're buying um, like an apartment and they, they, they sort of gripe about strata levies, go, oh, I don't want to pay strata levies. In reality, if you're buying into a good building, all this stuff is done by somebody else and you're no, paying yeah, for, for sure. it to be done. And this is, this is the thing that people often forget when they're buying a house is the level of maintenance, keeping on top of it, keeping windows painted, keeping, you know, it is, it is keeping things protected. I interviewed a, a um, on the Your First Home Buyer Guide podcast, interviewed a, an old building inspector a couple of weeks ago. And this is an inspector that I used to get when I first became a buyer's agent to actually do the inspections properties for our clients. And he said, it was just one thing and I was like, yes, so true. He said, the minute a building is built, it starts deteriorating. Mm. So you've got to keep on top of it. Yeah, but you don't want to be that person keeping on top of it that's, uh, you know, you know, I guess raking the leaves before they're fallen, I guess. Yeah, um, that's like my partner. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think they're slightly uh, a little bit too oh, over the it. top. With, She's um, got a leaf blower. It's fantastic. The neighbours yeah. will know us. There she goes. Then <laughs> 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 it keeps it looking beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So just uh, don't, don't become obsessive and um, spend more time out of the house than in it. Um, anyway. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> If you've ever wanted to know how you should work out how much to insure your house for, you need to join in next week. Come along, listen as we interview Marty Sadler. He's a uh, quantity surveyor and he's an expert in the cost of building. And you will be shocked and alarmed at the high proportion of property in this country that is underinsured. We talk about why. We also talk about how you can avoid happening to you. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.